Well, good morning. Glad you guys are here with us this morning. You guys having a good morning? Good, good. Hey, I'm glad you guys are joining us online. Uh, our online family, you guys are with us. Uh, I, uh, I, I creeped on this morning. I saw Chris Warden. Uh, how you doing, man? It's been a long time. It's been a long time. You should share with me about how your life's going. I know this is awkward because this is a one-way conversation, but I'm having a really good time. Um, uh, Presslers, Presslers, glad you guys, Wildmans. Um, I, I got to be honest, uh, Mama Bug, I don't know who you are, but we're glad you joined us, and I'm glad that you guys got settled in Roberts, Montana. That's awesome. You're watching Roberts. Uh, someone else is watching in Albany. Um, little Minions. Little Minions. Dan and Eileen Sproul. If you know Dan and Eileen Sproul, um, Dan is about this tall, and Eileen's about this tall. And so she said, the short Sproul and the tall Sproul are here today. Um, glad you guys are joining us. Uh, of course, my Grandma Eunice and Grandpa Doug are watching, you know, because I'm their grandson, and what more are they going to do on a Sunday morning than watch me? Uh, and my wife, you know, because she loves me, she's watching. Uh, Mike and Leah, uh, glad all you guys, whether you checked in or not, we're glad you guys joined us. And, and I want to say, I don't probably say this often enough, um, with technology, one of the cool things is we have a really cool, new, incredibly simple way of, of trying to share our faith. Uh, you know, in past times, and there'll be times again, where we'd have a big event coming up and we'd give you all these like little promo cards and we'd encourage you to give them to people or leave them around places. Uh, all, all you gotta do is, if you're on Facebook, you just have to hit that share button. Uh, or if you're on Church Online, you can go on Facebook or Instagram and just invite people to, to join you online. Uh, and it's, and it's, really, it's really that simple. Um, hey, hey, so um, my first job was uh, at... Burgerville, right here in Monmouth at Burgerville. Um, I needed to get a job because I just turned 16 and uh, just started to be able to drive. And so I needed a job so I could make money so I could pay for my gas to drive back and forth to work, right? And, and then I learned this is what adulthood is. It's just working to pay bills, and that's what it means to be an adult. And uh, so I had a friend who'd worked there already, and he told me if I wanted to get a job, I needed to be persistent and make sure to follow up with my application because who is gonna care about a 16-year-old dude with a one-page application who has no work experience? And so I took his advice, and I was persistent. I, I went... Um, by often, and I would say, you know, hey, is the manager in? And, and uh, you know, someone would go get the manager. They stick their head out, and I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm Sean Bitzer. I, I put in an application. I didn't know if you had a chance to look at it yet, if you're planning on hiring anybody. And um, after 13 days of doing it every single day, the manager finally said, I figured if I give you an interview, I will see you less often. And so, so I got a job at Verva. But, but but it always hasn't been that way. I mean, there's another job I thought of, a, a, a job I was trying to get, and, and I, I thought I was the perfect fit for it. I mean, just a shoe in for it. I, I'd done the work, I'd worked under the guy that I was wanting to replace, and, 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 and I'd put the time in, and I'd, and I'd studied, and I'd done all the glad handing that you have to do when you're trying to get a promotion. And, and um, uh, I did the interview, and I thought, I mean, I don't know if you've ever been there. I thought the interview was just a formality. I'm like, uh, let's be honest, who else are they going to hire, right? And so I did the interview, and then you know what happened? A couple weeks of silence. And then I got the email. Have you, have you gotten this before? Sorry to inform you, we've decided that we're going to go a different direction. 
And I was angry. Like, like I was upset and I was irritable and I was frustrated and I was, you know, in our living room going, yeah, you know those stupid heads, they don't know anything and they're a bunch of idiots and meanie faces and, you know, all these really angry things that pastors say, uh, you know, with our Jesus cuss words. And so um, that's what those are, just fillers, right, for things you really want to say. And so, um, and my wife, she'd say, you know, Sean, like, it's, it's okay to be sad. Like, it's okay to be disappointed. I'd be like, I'm not disappointed. I'm frustrated. They didn't know what they, oh, really? Just covering up this feeling of rejection and on some levels, heartbreak of an expectation I had of some embarrassment, right? You know, one of, one of the things that is so difficult about rejection, like, there's no way around it. Like, rejection just sucks, you know? One of the things that's so horrible about rejection is that it's, it's never in the moments that you expect it, right? The worst kind of rejection come in the most unexpected places. You know, it's when, it's when you have put in the time, you've gone through the training, you've, you've done the work that your, your, jo- your boss is expected of you, and you go in for the interview, and they're going to go a different direction, when you, when you put all the energy in to build this confidence that you can do it and you can accomplish it and you're well-trained and you're well-equipped and they're going to go in a different direction. Or, or maybe you step out in a relationship because this new established trust and you think that there's a depth and an intimacy in this relationship and you try and take a step in this relationship, they're going to go a different direction. And it's in, it's in those most unexpected most intimate moments that rejection is the most heartbreaking. If there's, if there's anyone who knows rejection, it's Jesus. If we were to define Jesus' life by, by um, statements or phrases or try to condense it down into like one word or phrase, there's a lot of things we could say. We could say things like the cross, Forgiveness, restoration, grace, uh, resurrection, new life. There's a kingdom of heaven is here. If, you, if, you, if you've been reading the book of Matthew with us, that might what you, we, kingdom of heaven might be what you say, right? There's a lot of things we could define Jesus' life with, uh, but I think that one of the markers that we so often overlook in Jesus' life is that of rejection. I mean, John, in his account of the gospel, uh, John 1 is this uh, incredibly beautiful opening that John gives us. But this is what John says right in the beginning when he's talking about Jesus. He says this, John 1 verse 1, he being John, I mean not John, being Jesus, different J, he being Jesus was in the world. Now look at this, look at the next phrase, he says, the world was there through him, right? This is what John's saying, and it says elsewhere in scripture, that that, um, all that is created was created in him and through him and for him. It's his creation, He made it, right? Part of the triune Godhead spoke it into existence. The world was, it only existed because of him. And yet, I love how this translation puts it, the world didn't even notice. God himself appears in creation, his creation, that out of the overflow of love and his glory, he spoke into existence. Didn't even notice. A little bit later, John says 
In chapter 11, he talks about Jesus getting rejected by the religious leaders of the day, the church leaders of the day. John 11, verse 53, it says this. From that day on, they plotted to kill him. Now, now, I don't know what kind of rejection you've experienced in your life, but the fact that I've never seen a Dateline special about your life seems to me to imply that nobody's ever plotted to kill you, right? But they plotted to kill him. So much so, it says, so Jesus no longer went out in among the Jews, his own people. But even more than that, his own disciples. He spent three years discipling 12 men. He spent three years giving all of his life, walking with them, showing the fullness of who he is to these people. And in particular, to three of those disciples were kind of like the inner circle of the 12. And one of those was Peter. And you remember there's this exchange with Jesus and Peter. And, 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 and Jesus says, you know, Peter basically says, we're never going to abandon you. We're never going to leave you. We're, never gonna, you know, we're not going to let these things happen. And Jesus says, Peter, 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 Peter. Before the crow, uh, before, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then John, Luke records it this way. Luke records that last denial of Jesus, of, of, of Peter rejecting Jesus. That last denial comes in Luke 22. It says this. And I love, there's a little detail here. I, I want to use Luke's, trans, Luke's version of it. Peter replied, I don't know what you're talking about in, in about being connected to Jesus. Just rejecting him. I don't, I don't know who he is, Right? Right then, while Peter was still speaking, a rooster crowed. Now, look at this little detail that Luke includes that we don't see in any of the other Gospels. The Lord, being Jesus, turned and looked at Peter. Just think in that moment. Peter rejects Jesus for the first time, for the third time. Jesus is in agonizing pain. He's feeling the weight of sin and the brokenness of the relationship with his father because of our brokenness. He's, he's feeling the full weight of the brokenness on humanity, uh, humanity on. And, and it's fully human. Yes, Jesus is fully God. Yes, in this moment, somewhere in his mind, he knows that he's going to raise from the dead and he's going to send into heaven. He knows all those things. But in this moment... One of his dearest friends abandons him. And in that moment, he turns and he looks and sees the white of Peter's eyes. Often when we look at this, we talk about the heartbreak that Peter must have felt in that moment when he looked and he looked at Jesus, having just denied him. But think of the heartbreak and the rejection that Jesus felt. One of his dearest friends, in his greatest time of need, abandons him. I mean, if we're going to talk about rejection, uh, you can't ignore Judas, right? One of the other disciples. Not exactly this shining example of what it means to be a follower of Jesus, okay? But Judas, look at how Judas betrays him. He's the one who betrays him that ends up leading to the cross. When they go to arrest Jesus, it says he, being Judas, went over to Jesus and greeted him with a kiss. Jesus asked Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss, the intimacy of that moment that he drew near to him and kissed his cheek. You, you gotta imagine, would have held his shoulders and pulled him into himself, all the while rejecting and betraying him. It may be fair to say that Jesus' life, his ministry, was marked more by those who rejected him than by those who accepted him. 
Yeah, I mean, there'll come a moment. Jesus will raise from the dead and he'll ascend into heaven and, and this little kind of ragamuffin group and, and Pentecost will happen and thousands will come to follow Jesus and, 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 and Jesus' life, because of Jesus and the thing that was birthed in the church, will change all of human history. Yes, that's all true, but in Jesus' life, how often Jesus' ministry was marked by rejection. There's one point where uh, uh, crowds, Jesus is teaching, and they say, this is hard teaching, this is hard teaching, and they begin to wander away, and all the crowds begin to leave, so much so. Hear the humanity in Jesus' voice. He turns to his disciples. When everybody else is wandering away, he turns to his disciples, and he says, he says, "Uh, are you going to leave me too? Hear the heartbreak in that. Are you going to reject me and wander away just like all these other people? Now they have this great, you know, who else could we go to? Who has the words of life? But in that moment, Jesus, fully man, experiencing the anguish of rejection. In fact, one of the greatest chapters to prophesy about Jesus comes in Isaiah 53. It's this beautiful passage. I mean, I would encourage you to memorize it. It's so It's just such a beautiful passage. Isaiah 53, it says this right in the beginning. In Isaiah 53, verse three, it says this. He, being Jesus, was despised and rejected by mankind. This is what Isaiah wants us to know, or God wants us to know through Isaiah, through this prophecy, right at the beginning, right at the beginning. This is what would define his life, that he would be despised and rejected. A man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. If there is anyone who knows what it is to be rejected, it is Jesus. And you see, Matthew 13 closes up some really great teaching of Jesus, but it opens up a season in Jesus' life of rejection and heartache. As we get further into Matthew 14 in the weeks to come, you're going to see some of the most painful moments in Jesus' life. He's going, to, he's going to find out about his cousin who's dear, uh, dear cousin, dear family member to him, who, who gets killed because of just horrendous situation and rejection after rejection. And, and in the beginning of Matthew, Matthew, we have kind of um, uh, proclamations and we have celebrations. The, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is in your midst. But... The end of Matthew 13 makes a turn. There's going to come a point, actually, not too far after this in the life of Jesus, where um, one of the gospel writers says that Jesus turned his face towards Jerusalem, that, that he, he's going to start making this, this walk and this trek towards the cross, towards betrayal, towards rejection, towards anguish, towards separation, towards darkness. And this is beginning that season of his ministry. So Jesus has been teaching and healing, really doing some really incredible stuff, right? I mean, anytime somebody heals somebody, can we all agree that's, that's, that's pretty incredible? And Jesus does a lot of it. And he heads to his hometown, and it isn't the way he left it. Have, have you ever gone back to your hometown? Maybe, maybe to, to, to the house you grew up in. When you go back, if, if you haven't, and it's been a long time, and you didn't go into, since you were a kid, I remember I went back, uh, grew up mostly in a, in a home in Seattle, and here's the deal. When you go back, everything seems a lot less, right? The, the driveway that I would tell these stories to people, I was like, oh, I was skateboarding down this, our driveway, and our driveway was so steep, it was almost like a cliff, right? I went back. It's a lot less steep. It's a little bit more of a bump, right? 
I imagine this house that we played hide and seek as grand, massive, and amazing. So it's a lot less than I remember. The, the front yard, we used to play baseball in the front yard, and I used to think, man, if I can hit the ball out of this yard, I could hit it out of any ballpark in the Major League Baseball, right? I went, I went back. It's, it's a lot less grand than I thought it was. Trees, evergreens that I thought were touching the sky are a lot less impressive. And Jesus goes back to his hometown, and he finds a people who are a lot less impressed with him than we would have expected. Jesus comes back to his hometown and they're a lot less impressed with him. Um, and he does, but he does the same thing that he's been doing with the crowds, right? He teaches, he teaches. Luke records it, I think it's Luke four. He records um, Jesus teaching and Jesus, I don't know if you know this, when Jesus teaches, the man teaches, right? Like Jesus kills it every time. I mean, it is part the fact that he is God, but there's never a Sunday where Jesus has a bad sermon right? I remember when I was in college, I had a professor who was adamant with us about do the hard work of sermon prep every week for the rest of your life, right? He said, don't just do it for a year or for five years and then start to God. Do the hard work every single week. And he would tell us this. He would say, he would say um, nothing hides a lack of talent like hard work. And that's good news for most of you, right? He, he told us a story about a classmate of his. And he started to notice as he kind of followed along with him that every three years he'd move, almost on the clock, every three years he'd move. He'd move, he'd move, he'd move, he'd move every three years. And one time they were at this pastor's conference together. They ended up at the same table and they were talking and it came up about how he just moved and the previous ministry had been three years and the previous ministry had been three years, the previous ministry had been three years. And so he started asking him, he's like, why, like, what happens after three years? And, 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 his, and his friend said to him, he said, well, you know, I, I figure I have 135 good sermons. And, it, you know, with some guest speakers and some weeks off and some mission Sundays, it takes about three years to get through my 135 good sermons. And, and my professor said that he thought in his mind, he said, how delusional and out of touch is this guy to think that he has one good sermon, Right? But Jesus, every sermon killed it. And he goes into his synagogue and he teaches and he kills it, but they don't respond the way that we'd expect. I mean, we'd expect if Jesus came home to his hometown, this is what we'd expect. We'd expect people to be like, ha, 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 hey, I, uh, that boy, I knew that boy. I changed his diaper. I don't care if he is the son of God. He better never forget, I changed his diaper. I babysat him. Remember that one time I dunked on God, right? T-ball, he batted ninth in the batting order. He was not good, right? Uh, Jesus, that boy, he's gonna put our town on the map. He's gonna put our town. That's not how they respond. Instead, look, look at what they say. Look what they say. Matthew 13, look what they say. It says this. He came to his hometown and he began teaching them in their synagogue with the result that they were astonished, right? Because God himself came to their church and taught and said, where did this man acquire this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is this not the carpenter's son? Is his mother not called Mary? 
And his brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas, and and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man acquire all these things? And look at this last phrase. And they took offense at him. Can can you just feel the condescending tone in this this critique? I mean, it begins with, it doesn't say, uh, where did Jesus learn all this stuff? You see what it says? It says, where did this man? And then it goes on. And, and this is their complaint. It, it, isn't this just Joe's son? It isn't, isn't his mom Mary? Right? And his brothers. If he's from the same stock as his brothers, you know his brothers. They're idiots. You remember last week, Judas crashed the donkey in the ditch, couldn't figure out how to put it in reverse. They're a bunch of idiots. Right? Can you just feel the condescension? I mean, come on, you know, remember, small town. We all remember why Mary and Joseph got married so quickly. You can just feel the condescension that happens in this place. And then it says this right here, and they took offense. This, this word here, this phrase behind it is, is where we get like the idea of like scandal or scandalized. It, it literally means this. Um, the word means to cause another anger or shock. Jesus' presence was not received with awe and wonder, but is received with anger and rejection. Here's the deal, too. Historians tell us that the town that Jesus was from at the time of Jesus um, was probably two to 400 people. Everyone knew Jesus. Everyone knew him and they knew what he'd been doing and they knew what he'd said and they knew the miracles that he'd done and, and they, they knew how he taught and they watched him teach in the synagogue and when he comes home, their response to him is to reject him. Rejection is hard. Dare I say it, even for Jesus. We've all been rejected at some point. Maybe for you, maybe for you, you were rejected by a parent. Maybe you were rejected by a child or or a family member or a spouse or a loved one or an employer or a coach or a teacher or community or even a church. Rejection is hard. And and maybe maybe it was because of something you said. Maybe it was because of something you did. Maybe, maybe it was actually because of your faith that you were rejected, but maybe it had nothing to do with you. Maybe it was just them bleeding their brokenness and you were the victim that they poured it out on. But it doesn't make it any easier. And I want to say to you today that if you've ever felt unwanted, rejected, underrated, you sit in good company because Jesus was too. It says in Hebrews, Hebrews 4, verse 15, it says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are. He did not sin. We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with us. So the question for us today is in a season of rejection or in a season of heartache. Remember, this is what the end of Matthew 13 is launching us into, is a season of heartache for Jesus. What could we learn from how Jesus responds to the heartache? 
Well, Matthew 14 tells us how he responds. And, and he, here's the funny thing. Here's what I really love about the, the honesty of the Bible. Um, he actually tries to do what he needs to do twice in the face of respo- uh, rejection and, and heartache. The first time he fails, if I could say it, he, I mean, he's God, he didn't fail. You know what I mean? It, it doesn't work out, okay? Obstacles get in the way. Matthew 14, verse 13 says it the first time. It says it this way. That's supposed to say 14, not four. Someone asked me about second, first service. 14. He, being Jesus, withdrew from there in a boat to a secluded place by himself. Now, if you know what happens here, thousands of people show up. It doesn't work out. He tries to be by himself, but then it goes on in Matthew 14, verse 23. 10 verses later, after all the feeding of the 5,000, it says this. After he'd sent the crowds away, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. And it was evening and he was there alone. Anytime a writer repeats himself, he wants you to notice it. Matthew said it three times in these two verses. He said it twice in the same sentence in one verse. He was there by himself. He was alone. Now, here's what we know theologically. Jesus wasn't alone, right? God is omnipresent. God is everywhere. He, he didn't go there to be alone. He went there to be with his father. He went there to be with his father. You see, in the face of rejection, what Jesus chooses to do and what we need to do is we need to reground ourselves. We need to reground our souls deep in the presence of our father. In the face of rejection and heartache, Jesus goes to be with his father. In the face of rejection and heartache, we too must do the same. It may look different for you, but it is high time that we get to follow in an example of Jesus and get ourselves re-grounded in the face of rejection and heartache. Here's where the rubber meets the road. Let me ask you this. In this last year, in this last year, have you, have you found yourself to be more angry than past years? Have you found yourself to be more frustrated, more bitter, more irritable and hard to get along with? Have you found more division and disharmony and dysfunction in your life this year than in past? Maybe all really just attempts to try and cover up the pain of rejection and heartache that this year has brought on so many of us. And here's the deal. I don't fault you for those things. But I know that it's not what God's calling us to. It's not what God wants for us. If you've been feeling worried or angry or bitter or irritable, let me, let, me just, let me just be really blunt and be really honest with you and ask you this question. How's your time been with your father? How's your, have, you, have you been purposeful? Have you been aggressive? I mean, Jesus, it took two attempts for Jesus to get away, to get with his father. In the face of demands of thousands of people, in the face of thousands of people and the demands of his disciples, Jesus is, uh, perseveres in an effort to get alone with his father. What's it look like for you this week? Because as, as, as compassionately, as compassionately and pastorally as I can say to you, I don't care about what your excuses are if you haven't been rage crazy about getting time alone with God. Jesus fought for time with his father. 
In the midst of heartache and rejection, he fought for time with his father. In the face of the demands of thousands of people, all the while he stood up on a mountain and he watched his disciples nearly drown in the sea before him. In the face of all those, I don't know what demands you have on your life, but I can tell you they're not thousands of people screaming for your time. They're not 12 disciples out in a boat almost drowning in the ocean. And Jesus fought in the midst of all the distractions to ground himself in his father. If Jesus, hear this, if Jesus needed to be alone with his father, then so do we. If Jesus, in the face of such demands on his soul, needed time to retreat away from this world to be alone with the father, so do we. A friend of mine, just said the other day, he said, uh, my wife can tell when I haven't been reading my Bible. She can tell by the way I interact with her and the rest of the family and with work and with people, she can, she can tell. And she'll ask me, she, you know, have you been reading your Bible? I, I, I want to tell you, church, that there's a watching world that can tell when we haven't been getting time with our Father. Hell. There is a watching world that is watching a church that is panicking and as angry as everyone else. And I wonder, have we been retreating to be with our Father? But see, here's the good news for each one of us today. The invitation stands the same as it did 2,000 years ago when Jesus spoke it. Come to me, all who are weary, and I will give you rest. It's the great news of, of the story of the prodigal son. You know the story of the prodigal son. He goes away and, and, and he burns everything and he gets rejected and he's unwanted and he's cast aside, but his father's waiting for him. His father's waiting for him. And as soon as he turns back, his father runs to him to embrace him. In the face of the rejection of the world, there is a waiting father who wants to embrace you who wants to bring you back into his family, into his home and throw a party and celebrate. Not, not because the rejection of the world has gone away, but because the, uh, the acceptance of the Father has overwhelmed you. And whether for the first time or simply again, may we take seriously the invitation of Jesus. Come to me all who are weary and I will give you rest. May we be a people May we be a people who retreat well. Who in the times of most pain and heartache run most aggressively to be with our Father in the face, in the face of the greatest demands in our life. May we push in to Him. May we learn truly what it means to be sons and daughters of our good and loving Father, because that, that'll change everything.